Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club podcast. Today I have with me Darren Burrell. A professional money manager with 28 years experience in both public and private sectors. Uh, Highlights of his active duty service as an Air Force financial manager include managing $15 billion at the Pentagon, $12 billion on the front lines of Iraq and Afghanistan, and finishing up his career in the White House managing the president's communication budget. After seven years in the financial private sector, he's in the process of capitalizing his first fund, Veteran Ventures Capital, which is an investment firm focused on scaling and growing veteran businesses. And we're recording this on the Friday before Memorial Day, so pretty timely. You know, and I want to kind of thank you for all the the service you've done for the country. And let's kind of jump right into this. You know, we have a lot of private equity folks that come on the show. You all obviously have a, a very different lens through which you're looking at investing. We did your bio and and the rundown, but where where is this, I guess, culturally growing up? Was service always part of your family culture? Wow, great. Thank, thank. Well, first off, Brian, I appreciate the opportunity to come here and, and talk a little bit about uh, Veteran Ventures, my background, like you've said, uh, where this all came about, right? And it did. My dad did serve in the Air Force, and then my grandfather did Navy. So we do have a history of that. And, and I did a full career in the military. So I, I came into service a long, long time ago. Did 21 years active duty. All of it though was in financial management, so it was a little different track. I didn't, I didn't fly to planes in the Air Force. I just paid for them. (laughs) So, and uh, I, I, I've got to say that I I will be going to see Top Gun two this weekend. You have me both. Yeah, baby. I'm, I'm super pumped about it. So, yeah, yeah, that's great. And again, um, 
There's a lot of air power ain't free is what we used to say when I was in that active duty is that bills had to get paid and they were large, large sums. You know, I managed about 15 billion, like you said, in the intro, just in the Pentagon alone. And then uh, throughout all the different you know, 10 moves in 21 years, there's a lot of great opportunities and some high visibility things that there's a, there's a no fail mission in a lot of those areas uh, from the president to, to the, to being deployed in a combat environment. All those things kind of really helped shape me for the, for the next phase in life. Cause I got out in 2015 and I did the same thing in the private sector in terms of, you know, helping businesses grow and scale mainly in the financial area. But I guess really what the, the impetus for better ventures is, is I saw a need in my own, you know, experience of trying to raise a couple million dollars for the company I was at. And I became painfully aware that better known businesses are, are disadvantaged when it comes to access to capital. Um, and so that's when I, you know, I, I saw saw that need. I really wanted to get back into the, the military ecosystem and network and help out veteran businesses. So money management, veteran businesses kind of match those up into veteran ventures capital. And th that's really, you know, it was all about seeing people be successful in their transition uh, to the private sector. I had done it. I, I had done a very good, had a great second career. But I also saw an opportunity for investors to make some uh, a, a health, healthy profit in this double bottom impact type of fund. And really, that's kind of what we did. A couple of veterans got together and said, you know, at the time, hey, let's do something akin to military shark tank. And that was raising the fund. We started that in COVID. And, and now we're well on our way to the $50 million target that really hones this veteran idea, but it's built out so much more than since then, I'm happy to talk further about it as we go along. Yeah, and that was one of the questions I wanted to ask was if, whether or not you considered yourself an impact investing vehicle. Um, I know 10, 20 years ago, that line between you know doing good and doing well was much starker. And now it seems like, especially within the veteran community, there's this thought that we can make money and we can also help a lot of folks transition from their service into kind of private civilian life. I assume that was part of the, the thought process here when you launched it. Yeah, it's really evolved over time because, you know, when I first started and when I tried to raise that capital on my own, which I did, got a couple million for the business I was at, which later led to an exit event of a 5X return in about three to five years. And so it was a, it was a nice opportunity to see what I'm doing now in action personally. But I didn't know at the time that veterans are considered an underrepresented group in venture capital. Um, so they're 30% less likely to receive venture funding, even though census data shows that they out earn their non-veteran counterparts. So you do see this, hey, it's a veteran thing. It's an underrepresented thing. There's plenty of diversity and inclusion built into the military. So there's this definite, uh, 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 you know, the social impact type of format. But at, this, at, the, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're making investors money because we want to see a fund two, a fund three, and a fund four. And the way to do that is, again, to, to garner a return that it exceeds expectations and helps them, helps veteran uh, businesses grow, but also helps garner that return. So, I mean, I think that, like you said, there's been such a merge of people wanting to see their funds and their investments have an impact. And I think we do that. I think we do that in a massive way. We see that veterans are certainly more likely to, to employ veterans than 
than the, the non-veteran counterparts. So there's this, there's this sense of really helping these people succeed in the private sector, but there's still the primary shareholder interest or investor interest that, that we seek to, to maximize returns. So my brother-in-law is an Annapolis guy. He transitioned five or six years ago, service warfare, and now he's in healthcare, private equity here in Nashville. But I remember talking to him about this when he was still in doing a short, short duty, going to business school. Why is it, and you mentioned this kind of access to capital historically, it's been underrepresented population within the venture community. Why is it that, in your opinion, you know, we think about folks in the military having these great leadership skills and quality and experience, but it's so hard for the private sector to figure out what to do with a lot of these folks. I mean, why is there that disconnect? And are you trying to help kind of bridge this historical gap for this population? Oh, yeah. Man, so much to, to, to peel, peel back there. So let me cut, give me a, a, a little brief history lesson, what I'll call the a pre-9-11 veteran and a post-9-11 veteran. Okay, so pre-9-11, you know, think back World War II and, and Vietnam, Korea, all of those, those conflicts, um, veterans came back from those, those conflicts and they started businesses at a dizzying rate, 50%. And some, some statistics show it even higher. So there was a massive move in entrepreneurship and innovation that not only were they successful, but they transformed businesses across the globe and put us on the, on the, you know, on the center stage for decades to come. Think about Federal Express, uh, Walmart, Enterprise, U-Haul, and even Domino's Pizza was started by a better. I mean, you have these things that weren't just successful. I mean, Walmart and FedEx, they, they, they just trade, they, they changed business. And that's, and then even upward into the eighties, almost 70% of fortune 500 CEOs had some level of better experience. So that there's a history of innovation and leadership by our nation's veterans. Now, fast forward to today, think of, and set, let's set the stage. There's certainly far more investment uh, by the military into the DOD. They spend billions every year in developing our nation's leaders. In fact, we have a white paper on our website about why veterans pick better entrepreneurs. And it takes those characteristics of Fortune 500 CEOs, think about you know, their focus, their ability to make decisions in a time-constrained environment, you know, their, you know, just the, the grit and determination. I mean, those are things that are taught in the military. It doesn't matter what service, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, or Coast Guard. The, it doesn't even matter what officer and enlisted. They all come out with the same skill set as these Fortune 500 CEOs. And so there's this Again, that's one big issue is the, is the leadership development. Two is the educational component. I, I am one of uh, the three veterans on the, on the GP, and I'm the dumb one with three master's degrees. Uh, the, the two other partners have PhDs, and there are several other investors that are veterans. They also have PhDs. So the, the education is incredible. Finally, the technology that they get to play with in DOD is some of the most advanced on the planet. If you think about satellite energy, satellite images, biotech, robotics, all these things that they play that that's so, so the, the, the stage is that they should be even, even more sought after. 
But what has happened is that 50% start rate that we talked about in uh, the pre-9-11 veteran, today, the desire even to start a business is at 25%, but the execution of that desire is less than 5%. And so there's a dramatic incre- decrease in, in veteran started businesses since, uh, since 9-11. And the number one reason that is cited it's not, it's not opinion. I mean, the, the institution, uh, the Institute of Veteran and Military Families out of Syracuse, IVMS, they, they have annual studies on, you know, why veteran, um, why veterans are having trouble starting business. And the number one reason is access to capital. And how, now why that happens is it, it's just a simple explanation is that, you know, while people on the outside, I've spent 20 years developing a network surrounded on folks like Wall Street that really know where the pockets of information and funding are. Well, the veteran was serving their country, right? They were, they were off deploying. I mean, I deployed five times over my career. And so there's just this lack of, of network and therefore a lack of access to camp. And so, yeah, we believe that Veteran Ventures Capital, one of our founding premises is to fill that gap because we know History shows, and when, and folks on our team have lived it, that they outperform. Given the opportunity, and it's not because of any, you know, magic sauce or anything, they're just not used to second place, right? Second place on the battlefield means you're dead. And so their opportunity there to take that grit and determination and mission focus, all of those things, and plug those same principles into the private sector, it's a natural win-win. Um, and so that's, Again, that's that's a little bit of the background, and I think I think it gives you a flavor for they, they make great investments, they get make great opportunities, and so we're 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 committed to that, and and we see that now. And I mean, we've we've broken escrow and invested in seven companies already, and they're all doing very well. Yeah, we're I'm seeing this play out in the real estate space as well in terms of veterans being sponsors and operators on on real estate opportunities and trying to leverage their network, but. And I've had a number of conversations with the folks in that world. To your point, the biggest challenge is, especially if they're enlisted, it's just they don't have that affinity network of accredited investors or high net worth individuals or you know, folks who are in the financial services space because they've been sucking sand somewhere for 10 years, right? And so it's just a challenge. And I think you can have the mindset of it, it is what it is, but there are a lot of groups out there trying to change that dynamic, including yours. So I want to get into, but I think I understand the investment thesis and the historical data points that you brought out are, are really interesting, kind of pre-post-9-11. I went to an all-boys military school pre-9-11, and it very much is a different conversation, I think. Let's talk about kind of the investment thesis itself into the deals and the value proposition. You know, are you only focusing on industries that have to do with defense or are you agnostic? Tell me a little bit more about kind of, you mentioned the, the deals that you've done that have been going well. What do those look like? Yeah, so it, 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 it is, um, I don't want to get off on too much of a, of a, of a tangent, but I, you know, kind of stressing what you just last said on the, the, the groups like ours, um, they have proliferated in terms of tr- trying to help to the transitioning veterans succeed in the, in the private sector as well, because while there, uh, it used to be that when you thought about a veteran, you know, in transition, you typically thought, oh, okay, wounded warrior, PTSD, those are very valid discussions and, and certainly are worth continuing to put on the forefront. 
but that's a microcosm of the of the group, right? At most, you know, twelve to fifteen percent, eighty five percent of those of us who are like me came out and are ready to do too good in the private sector. But what what our thesis goes into is where they have where the military excels at is where we see our best deal flow. So we saw roughly five hundred different deals last year. And what we are what we're finding is is those those opportunities in the national security and defense side, those have the greatest potential for large returns in a compressed time period. And let me break that down. So really what what I've done uh, and what another member of, uh, of our team has done is is we manage contracts and procurement actions for the government to our financial means, you know, in the tens of billions. So we know how that system works. And the businesses that we see the most potential for is those coming to us, typically their post-revenue around a million or so, and they have a desire to do business with the government. And so what we can do is help kind of pave that path forward. And if you look at the defense sector, those publicly traded companies that focus on the GovCon or government contract sector and the defense side, they traded a higher multiple than their non-defense counterparts. So there's already an embedded part of, you know, governmental contracts. That's a very steady way to generate revenue. So we're looking for that opportunity. We're also looking for dual use technology. So it's not solely relying on the government, but has the ability to do both at the same time. So public and private markets. So that's, if I could kind of, you know, again, drill down a little bit on that is if I, you know, a veteran owned business has certain advantages when competing for those contracts at the federal level and, it, and at several state levels. So we can use their their uh, status as a veteran-owned business or even a service-disabled veteran-owned business. And we can generate other non-dilutive opportunities like grant, small business innovative research grants, which are known as SIBRs. We've already garnered for our seven companies to almost $2 million of non-dilutive funding on top of the equity and vet investments that we've done in them to date. So that, I mean, why would you not want to take advantage of about a million dollars or so of governmental R&D money that, that leverages that LP investment, right? So, so it de-risks the investment for, for our RLPs, and it also gives them runway to help them scale and grow, develop the, the, the both the dual use side of what they're building and helping them, you know, they, they garner a $7 million contract from the government and they shoot from a million to 10 million in revenue in just a few years. Well, that, that, that garners the, op- the attention of those def- defense contractors, right? Those big prime contractors. And it could lead to a liquidity event in a quicker manner than simply a typical fund is looking at. Hope that makes sense. Yeah, that, no, it does. So what's the most excited company you have in the portfolio right now? Well, they're all really, really exciting and good. I would say that there are two companies in the portfolio today that I'll, I'll highlight simply because of the Ukrainian situation that we're in. Right. What we have are, and what part of the value added that we do is we want to see these companies making a difference in a difference in, you know, current world events. So there's a, there's, I'll, I'll talk about Silent Era. Um, that's one of our companies, and it's a uh, it's a it's a cargo drone glider opportunity. That you know, just briefly summarizing, if you've seen movies where they have this big C one thirty airplane and big pallet of cargo that 
jumps out of this or that, that comes out of the back of that C-130 has that big parachute that drifts down and sometimes it's destination. Well, this replaces that. That same C-130 can send out the back of the, uh, of the airplane has a this cargo drone that can hold up to 2,000, almost 2,000 pounds worth cargo. Then it shoots out wings like a switchblade knife and uses GPS and LIDAR to glide to the destination park on a dime. Think of not just, you know, military supplies and, and op- contingency operations like that, but really what we are seeing now is there's, there's a desire and a need for humanitarian relief operations, for medical supplies, blood, food, all these different, you know, areas that we're seeing a need for at the United Nations level on down. And so they're talking to our team about trying to get engagement for Silent Arrow and that. With real world applicability, this thing could do it. And it's just a matter of trying to, to make sure that all the uh, boxes are checked to make that happen. So that's a great opportunity. And this group, it's already got you know, o- over a million in, in revenue from international ops. I mean, Israel, it's got, you know, activity from Japan, Singapore, Thailand. So, so it's doing great. We've got, and they've garnered a couple of SBIRs themselves and we've helped them with one. And so they're generating all kind of activity on the operational side, but now we're opening up a whole new world for them on the humanitarian side and it's real world operations. So that's, that's a, a really great opportunity. The other one, is a, is a, is a company called Grist Mill Exchange. Um, this is an, a relatively new company, largely Intel based. A lot of, uh, folks from the Intel world started this company with the idea of commercializing intelligence. So, you know, there's so much data out there that the government does not have access to. The U S government does. Now, China and some of the other adversaries out there. They've been exploiting data from all kinds of different ways and illegal means, right? What this company is doing is legitimizing it and making it available to the U.S. government by serving as an intermediary between private enterprise and governmental agencies. So they're essentially going to private enterprising uh, enterprises and finding out, you know, all of the reams of databases that public companies have on their clients or their suppliers or everything from shipbuilding on up, on up, right? They'll, they'll say, hey, we can monetize that data for you, cleanse it, and then allow the U.S. government to use it to help, you know, generate more intel for, for usage across the, uh, the agency. And so there, again, this is a company that was formed late last year and already has about $3 million in rent. This is something huge because it's the government never had access to that and they're willing to pay for it uh, in a manner that helps them get more intel about whatever's going on in the world today. And that's why you see a lot of, you know, really minute detail coming out about some of the Russian operations right now is again, they're, they're being fed more information now than they ever have been before. So those are two, just two out of the seven, but I would say about 80% of our portfolio is looking at this national security and defense arena, which again, it, it is an opportunity to have a consistent revenue flow because a lot of them are going to be doing business with the government, but it also helps them diversify into the private sector. And so it's just a win-win for everybody around because if we can supplement and augment those investment dollars with non-dilutive funding like we have been able to, that's a, that, that again is such a de-risk investment 
and it still has a potential for a, a very nice return over the period of we look at about a you know a five five year time period. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. Are there areas or industries that you're consciously staying away from that, for whatever reason, you know, might just be some systemic risk or some geopolitical issues, um, either domestically or internationally, or maybe you just don't think that the value proposition is there? Are there things that are just kind of like a no-go zone for you? Yeah. So again, you know, the the areas that we look at in that national security area, if we drill down deep, is is in that security, I think cybersecurity, data security, even physical security, uh, logistics. It's another high area. I think, you know, again, the distribution and supply chain, blockchain. And then and then really aerospace is another area. That's what a couple of us did when we were active duty. So we know that space real well. And of course, with the with the impetus of the largest defense budget that carved out an area for space, we do see that being a heavy area forward. So those areas that we're not as familiar with. You know, the, some of the retail sectors, pure retail plays, it's not that we would be like, you know, no chance we would do it. We just don't add as much value there. And so for there, it would be, okay, you know, what are your true needs? What is your exit uh, time frame, or at least your anticipated exit? And we would weigh those areas that we don't have the expertise in. And if those, if some of the, the medical areas that have a great amount of potential well, those are, those could be quite a bit of time, years while you wait for FDA approval before you would see significant revenue. We're, 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 we're hesitant to go into those on this first fund, um, because of the, because of it is a first fund and we're looking for a track record to be built for future funds. And so really what we're looking for is probably not the, the 10 year time frame that you would be looking at in some of those opportunities. So it's not that we're avoiding you know, the medical side completely. It's just that it has to be something with a, a visible path to profitability within that, you know, 12 to 18 time frame. That makes sense. Bigger picture question I had for you over the last, call it 50 plus years, the relationship between kind of the federal government, Department of Defense, the actual military branches, and the private sector can be a bit schizophrenic, right? So, sometimes there's a lot of, cooperation and coordination. And then other times for whatever reason, the pendulum swings the other way. And a lot of these, you know, private bolt-ons are out of favor. And you can kind of see as an analogy, the space industry, right? NASA used to own all of it. And then there was Boeing and some of the big players. That's really being you know, disintermediated right now with SpaceX and Virgin and some of these other groups. And the government has seemed to be open to collaboration there because it's kind of fulfilling their overall mission. If we were to take that lens and look at the military applications, where are we right now in terms of state of play with the private sector and the federal government department of defense? Right. And yeah, you've opened a really good conversation piece because the, so I'll speak to DOD specifically, but there's applicability across the government. 
the government knows, and DOD in particular knows, that it needs more innovation. Okay, it it, it has historically been able to to do that in, it, organically, and there's still pockets of that still happening. But right now, their desire is to bring more of the innovation space that we see, like in the venture capital industry, in new technologies, and those types of things that they have over the last, let's call it five years, that hadn't been, a, you know, a huge play. But they, you, what you've seen things, you know, crop up is like the Defense Innovation University or DIU, and then the National Security Innovation Group and Network, them as well. AFWorks is a big move across uh, the Air Force to bring in innovation and private capital, by the way, into defense channels. And they all have, you know, there's Softworks, there's DoD Works, there's all these different groups that are trying to acknowledge that there is a problem in bringing innovation into or into the government, and then also encouraging through through matching funds and through often you know things that we would see in the private sector. They're trying to do that today. So there is a, a big move. And again, that's part of the value add that I think we bring is we know about those. In fact, some of the people on, in those areas, well, they, we used to work side by side with them when we were active duty. And so that helps us in our relationship management and understanding the different deadlines and packages and requirements. It's a challenge dealing with the government. And they know that too. They're trying hard to streamline contracting and procurement efforts. They're trying to streamline opportunities to do business with them. And so we're on the forefront of, of staying in contact with them and figuring out how best to help our companies get engaged. And then also, I mean, again, if there's a, there's this new programs that just came out called a Stratify and TACFI. And, and without getting into too much detail, you know, if you have some done some level of business with the government, then and, and one like an SBIR phase two, let's take that for example. Yeah. Typically in the Air Force, that's about $750,000. But if you've done that, you're eligible for this tactical financing program. Well, they will then say, okay, um, we'll, we'll give you up to $1.8 million that has to be matched by private equity or private capital. So that to, you know, it, it, so if we invested at 1.8 million in this group and then the government matches it, you know, you've got, you know, well over that almost $4 million. And half of that is paid for by the government, which automatically gives that, 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 that IRR ability to just really skyrocket. So those are some of the things that the government is doing, acknowledging that they aren't that, that good at it. And they're taking steps to help bring in and lure or, or you know, attract the right monies to help, uh, to really help further national security, right? It's all about trying to find the different technologies that are going to give us an edge in helping keep this country safe. And on a global perspective, is the U.S. on the vanguard of this movement? Are they cutting edge? Are we behind other organizations in, in Europe or, or Asia? Is there a, a playbook that anyone else is writing? Or are we the only folks kind of doing this and, and having an industry like yourself that's trying to work with the veteran community? Well, as far as the, the, the defense side, we're not the only ones doing it. We're probably the, well, we're by far the largest doing it. We're the largest, obviously, in the globe. But as far as the focus on veterans and veteran businesses, you'd be hard pressed to find another nation that is trying to do what we're doing through the, the, the preferential treatment that is sometimes shown to the veteran, veteran owned business arena. There's no one else that does that. And so 
at least certainly not to the extent that we do. Um, and I think that's really, you know, there's, there's a level of understanding that veterans, you know, again, have some ability to utilize what they've learned in the military and then apply it to doing business with the government, right? But that there are also limiting factors uh, in dealing with private industry that, again, the government acknowledges too. And so they give those, you know, the ability for them to compete with some of the larger defense contractors through these, these different designations and certifications. And that's unique. And that's really unique. And I think that's something that, that a lot of people, I mean, we're, we're in due diligence with a company right now that has generated, you know, over, over a million in revenue, 2 million probably, um, in the, in the last 12 months. Um, but they haven't used their veteran status in, in a, in a massive way to bring them even further opportunities with the government. Most of that didn't occur to them. And so that's taken the, the, the knowledge that we have and saying these are different ways that you can also, you know, go into the governmental side of the house. It'll unlock even bigger revenue streams for them uh, and help them kind of scale further and faster. Interesting. Yeah, the only country I can think of, and I'm certainly not an expert, but, you know, Israel, obviously, but they have compulsory service. So I think it's a little bit of a different animal. But but what they're doing within the venture capital tech, especially cybersecurity space, with how they operate with their, you know, defense department and the the, the private side, there's some really interesting things happening in that space. Yep. Tel Aviv right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a big, Australia is doing some things as well. So those two are probably the top two outside of us. But Israel, such a startup friendly arena there. We could learn a lot from them when it comes to early stage. Uh, but again, that's not necessarily the, because of the compulsory nature of it. Almost all businesses there are better known. Some, yeah, so you're right. Yeah, it's a different, a little bit different animal. Well, this has been fascinating, and you know, kudos to you, and, and thank you again for your your service. If people are interested in in learning more about the investments you're making, or if they're a veteran listening and they just want to get engaged with you and connected into your ecosystem that you're building out, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? Yeah, that it's it's real simple. Okay. We're on all of the social media platforms. If you Google Veteran Ventures Capital, you'll get us. But uh veteranventures.us is the website. So it's the dot US we did that on purpose. And so by all means there's there's the funding portal there, there's there's our portfolio, there's our investment thesis, there's our white paper. All of those things are there. But if you you know, the my email's Darren at veteranventures.us. Uh, so Happy to to talk further on that. That's D E R R E N. That's it's a very unique way of sp spelling it. And so, yeah, we would be happy to entertain any type. We're, we are finishing out the full capitalization of the fund um, over these next couple of months. So we would like to to stress that if you're wanting to get engaged and make a difference uh, in this particular fund, I, I would encourage you to kind of get get a hold of us, get a hold of myself, and we can walk through the value prop in a lot greater detail. Um, and then, uh, and then get going. And so I, but yeah, we're, we're everywhere and we would be happy to talk further, both to the investor, as well as the, what we call entrepreneurs and helping them uh, scale and grow businesses. Terrific. Darren, thank you again for the time. Best of luck moving forward. And, uh, I hope you enjoy, I hope you enjoy Top Gun 2 this weekend. You have a, well, have a great, <laughs> have a great Memorial Day weekend. Thanks to you too, and appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to, I love what you're doing here and 
and just really uh, thanks for uh, allowing us the opportunity really to go through how how we think that this is a double bottom impact that folks can be proud of and so look forward to hearing what we can do more together uh, in the in the weeks and months ahead absolutely thank you Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.